Hey guys and gals, welcome to another episode of the Man Talks podcast, where we're dedicated to building better men through conversation, connection, and community. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. We talk about purpose, legacy, influence, love, success, sex, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other change makers in our community on Facebook or go to mantalks.com. Now let's get on to today's show. Jason McKenzie is going to teach you how to be a stronger, wiser, and more courageous father. Jason McKenzie draws from his experiences as a survivor of his wife's battle with bipolar disorder and subsequent suicide, and has overcome a decade-long battle with alcohol. But he's finally become the father his kids have always deserved by being vulnerable. He's helping his daughters to use his experience to inform the choices they make. His driving purpose is to lift those who want more from their lives to increasingly higher levels of personal and professional performance. They're cultivating the power of vulnerability. He teaches them it's in the crucible of authenticity where they will develop unlimited strength, courage, and wisdom. His mission is to equip every person with the tools to make the choices that will create more of what they want in their lives. So let's bring on Mr. Jason McKenzie. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Mad Talks podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. Awesome. Uh, before we get started, we always like to ask our guest if they can share with us a defining moment for them as a man. I'm wondering if you have something that comes to mind. I certainly do. My defining moment as a man was uh, uh, August 30th, 2014, and it was the moment uh, my daughter, and my nine-year-old daughter at the time, um, walk up, walked up to me, looked me in the eye, and told me she was disappointed in me actually. And it was, uh, it was at that moment that I, I put down the bottle, um, that had been plaguing my life for a long time for the last time. And it uh, was really the turning point for me in starting to create a completely different life for myself and for my family and for really everybody that I come into contact with. That's, that must've been absolutely crushing. It was, uh, crushing, but you know what? It was uh, incredibly liberating at the same time because, it really allowed me to stop lying to myself and lying to everybody else and and really just be vulnerable and uh, take a uh, sort of a fearless inventory of myself without judgment. I was just so tired of, you know, rationalizing what I was doing and and really living a lie. So my daughter's, you know, having the courage to be honest with me gave me the courage to be honest with myself. And it turned out to be the, it was very hard at that moment, but shortly after it was quite clear to me that it was going to change the trajectory of my life. Yeah, it's pretty incredible when, you know, people are willing to, even at, especially at a young age like that, they're they're willing to take a stand for us and and just, you know, be radically honest with us. But um, you know, the question that I w- would love to dive into is is how did you sort of overcome that addiction? So, so you know, as somebody who's battled with addiction in the past, I think it's always important to sort of share that journey with people a little bit because, you know, I think so many people struggle with addiction in some way, shape or form. So I'm curious, did you go like the traditional route or how did you end up moving through that addiction? Yeah. So that's a great question. And it's one I've talked to quite a few people about. I I talked to somebody about it this morning, actually, who's struggling. I had tried and failed to quit drinking, you know, a thousand times before, before it finally uh, took, I guess. And for me, really what it was, was I didn't go any traditional route. For me, the key thing was vulnerability. 
And, it, you know, I define vulnerability as having the courage to look yourself in the mirror and be honest and without judgment about who you see staring back at you. And when, when I was her words gave me the courage to be able to do that. And when I did that, I realized that I just wasn't the man I wanted to be uh, and I couldn't pretend any longer. So what happened in that time was what really, I guess, cemented it for me was after a period of sobriety and, you know, it, it felt different to me. I didn't feel like I was white knuckling it all the time. I started to share my story because I've got, you know, quite an interesting story with my uh, my first wife's suicide and mental uh, mental illness and suicide and kind of drinking through that process. And so when I when I stopped drinking, I really started sharing my the real version of my story with people, not the, uh, you know, the varnished, sanitized version where I look like a hero, uh, but the real version where I was you know, severely human. And I had moments of, you know, where I stood pretty tall and I had a lot of moments where I fell miserably short when I was pushed beyond my, uh, my limits. But I decided to start just telling that version of the story and the craziest thing happened. And I mean, it seems straightforward now, but it honestly, I, I didn't think it would happen is people responded in kind because by being, my being honest and open and vulnerable, it really gave them a, created a safe place for them to do the same thing. And I started making these connections with people and really creating these opportunities for myself and for each other, uh, collaboratively. And I don't know, I just started, uh, I really outgrew the problems that I was drinking to run away from in the first place. And I, I really think that's a powerful message is it never personally resonated with me that I needed to admit that I was powerless over alcohol. I could never, I could never accept that. And, you know, some people that's the route they need to take and that's fine. That's everybody's on their own journey. But for me, I, I couldn't accept that premise. So, but what I've really learned is that, uh, and I, what I coach people on now is that, you know, as you start doing more of what's right about you and more of what's works, you are naturally going to outgrow what's not working in your life. And I think vulnerability and being open and honest with yourself and others is really the first step towards, you know, beginning that journey. You, you know, I, I can't help but think that there's a lot of guys out there and women that are listening to this episode right now that are, that are probably, you know, struggling with something in their lives and, and they need, they need that extra push to, um, break out of it. I'm wondering if you can share with us that unsanitized version of your story, you know, going back all the way to your first wife. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I met my the woman who became my first wife when I was 19 years old. And we had a very traditional, I lived, what I tell people is a very uh, should life. You know, I should go to college. I should get a corporate job. I should climb the corporate ladder. I should step on anybody that gets in my way. Um, I should, you know, protect myself from everybody around me who I thought wanted to harm me. And it really seemed to be working. I mean, you know, I had a house with a pool. I mean, all the sort of material indicators were there to tell me that what I was doing was working. But I also uh, lived a very narrow definition of what it meant to be a man, a very traditional definition of, you know, emotions are irrational, therefore they are weakness. Uh, logic is strength. And uh, that's what, you know, my job was to be strong. So after the birth of our second daughter, uh, my wife was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I mean, with the benefit of hindsight, I can look back before that time and, and certainly see a lot of red flags, but I just, I couldn't see them at the time. I wasn't willing to, I, I didn't have enough life experience or context in which to place them. So I, you know, and I really, I really wanted my life to unfold according to my plan because the more it unfolded according to my plan, the more it validated me as a man, right? That I knew what I was doing, that I was creating the life that I wanted. So when she became sick, I mean, <clears throat> just for quickly, for people who don't know what bipolar disorder is, it's a horrific mental illness 
and for my wife, it really, over a period of six years, destroyed her life. She was a police officer uh, with the OPP. And, you know, she ended up being, I mean, living in homeless shelters, running with drug addicts, being institutionalized, getting electroshock therapy, spending us to near bankruptcy, um, you know, just incredibly risky, horrific behaviors. And, you know, for me, everything in my life went from this, you know, great certainty, I guess, to to total uncertainty. I had no idea what was going to happen from one day to the next. So uh, I was trying to raise my daughters through this time and keep my wife alive and keep myself sane. I didn't have any emotional sort of infrastructure, I guess, to to be able to deal with any of that when it was happening. I mean, the way I looked at it was I wasn't going to talk to somebody about how I was feeling because talking about it wouldn't do anything to make Cindy not sick. So I had better things that I needed to focus on, um, which was getting through the day. You know, I know now, and it sounds so obvious to say it out loud, but I know now that we all feel every human emotion. That's part of our humanity. And it's part of what makes us rich and diverse and strong and resilient. But I didn't know that at the time. So invariably when, you know, my emotions would uh, sort of erupt, I guess, like a volcano, it would always be at these inopportune times where I would break down crying, you know, at some moment when I least expected it, I'd have an anxiety attack at the dinner table, I'd blurt my life story out to the lady standing behind me in the grocery store when she asked me for the price of strawberries. And whenever these things happened, I all I could see was cracks forming in the dam. Like I was, man, I was the only thing that could keep this ship upright. And uh, I was falling apart. So ultimately, I sort of just turned to drinking to, to calm those you know, those fears and anxieties. And it worked, except, or it appeared to work, except I also, I drank away joy and passion and hope and gratitude. And, and those were already in, you know, really short supply. And that was really when I needed them the most. And uh, so I became, I don't know, I just became uh, just trying to soldier through life, trying to raise my kids and, you know, just, just drinking my emotions away. And that really carried on for a long time after she died. After she died, I, I ended up remarrying into an incredible woman who's helped me be, you know, get to where I am today. But I thought that when Cindy died, I just turned the chapter, you know, turned the page and closed that chapter. And I said, okay, it's God, that, thank God that's over. It's time to build a new life. And what I realized was, man, for a long time, I ran from having to grieve her death. I didn't think, I thought grief was a thing that just weak people did while strong people, you know, got up and carried on with the, taking care of business. And, and when I gave my, when I finally quit drinking and gave my space, gave myself the space to, you know, feel and, and kind of learn how to deal with my emotions, I started grieving her death. And it was five years after it happened. And uh, it was quite an experience. But, you know, I, I was able to, I was able to let my kids in on that process, because I think it's important. And I want them to know that, they will face tragedy at some time in their lives. It's just part of the human condition. And I want them to know that, you know, to see what it's like and to see that it's nothing to be scared from, but to also know that their dad has been through it and that I'm a safe place to turn to when they are in, inevitably faced with that. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the Coles Notes version of the story. Wow. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jason. I know that, um, you know, for a lot of the listeners out there, I mean, even for us sitting here, it's a really powerful story to hear. And, it's probably even years and years later, still a, a heavy thing to share with people, but you know, it really has a capacity to, to impact people and create positive change. And one of the things that 
we have put out quite a bit. We, we asked our community lately, you know, what was something that they wanted us to touch on. And oddly enough, there was a huge response from people wanting us to dive into grief because grief seems to be something that a lot of men really struggle with. And, you know, it, the, the response came from a lot of women in our community who were saying my husband or my father or, or my brother is dealing with the loss of something or someone and, and they don't know how to deal with it. And I see them struggling. Uh-huh. And it's, it's been really interesting to see. And I, I have this saying, which is uh, what you avoid, you become. And so it's like the more that you avoid grief, the more that you become grief. And eventually it's just going to take over. So I'm curious as to, you know, what can you share your process with dealing with the grief and what, what that was like and how you move through that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So it's really interesting, actually, because, you know, for me, it was sort of it all. It, it was a bunch of things um, sort of coming together at the same time. Like I, I was really starting to experience a lot of emotions at this point in my life that I had never really let myself feel, you know, so I'd I'd wake up, I'd wake up and uh I'd be able to say to my wife, God, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I feel, I feel terrible. I'm, you know, I'm crabby and God, this, what, I feel like there's something, I'm broken. She goes, you know, and she would say, you're, you're having a bad day, you idiot. It's like, <laughs> it happens to all of us. You know, you just never really let yourself feel that way. So, you know, as I was sort of going through this process of, of learning how to deal with these emotions, I noticed myself starting to think about Cindy more. And I, I had really not thought about her very much at all. And it was, Sometimes I would just I would just get extremely sad, break down, you know, just about what I had lost and and I guess grieving the I mean there were some pretty dark years there and just kind of I don't know thinking back to some of those things that had happened, some of the things that I had done and not really from a like not not from a guilt point of view. I don't have any guilt or shame about it. I mean those things happened and and I feel like I'm using them now, you know, in a net positive way. But, and then I started to, I started to write actually, and I was writing a lot about her, about the things that had happened. I remember saying to my wife, now, do you find this odd that I'm, you know, that I'm writing so much about my dead ex-wife? I mean, and she said, you know, of course not. This is, this is something you need to do. And it's also a great service to people, right? So that happened. And I found myself doing things like I'm into like road cycling. So I, I rode my bike a hundred kilometers to her grave one day. Just, I felt like I needed to do that. And, you know, it was weird because I think part of me, I knew it was a 200 kilometer round trip. And I, I don't know, I just felt like part of me I don't know, wanted to suffer or something to, in some way to relate to the suffering that she went through. I'm not, that's kind of what I think I was doing, but there was perhaps some guilt there in some, in some shape. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, possibly, you know, and I, I guess, you know, I guess I think she went through a big part of her life, never feeling worthy. Um, she had a very, you know, uh, tragic upbringing and that really came back to haunt her in her later years. But I think what I wanted to her to see somehow is that she was worthy of me really pushing myself to go visit her or something. You know, I think that's more what it was. And it's, it's kind of a, it sounds strange to say it out loud, but it's how I felt at the time. And, and that's part of the grieving process. And so what ended up happening was it allowed me to put our lives together into a different context. Like I, I look back on it differently. I don't look back on it anymore as, you know, like this terrible, terrible time in my life. Like it was very difficult, but I more look back on it as a real series of steps in the journey that took me to where I am today. 
And that's a very, um, I guess, empowering way to look at it because I don't think back and, you know, I don't look back on it and, you know, think of all those, all those tough times and lost years. I more think of it as what did I learn from this experience and, and how can I use this to be of service to other people? And so I still have moments, you know, where I, I don't know, I'll watch God, like I've, I watched Forrest Gump this summer. And, the, oh. <laughs> and when Jenny dies at the end, I had totally forgotten about that part because I hadn't watched it in like 20 years. And That's I'm like, so oh. funny. It's so funny you said that. My wife and I watched Forrest Gump on Sunday or su- Saturday night and both of us were bawling. Oh, yeah. Like I've seen a, it for like 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, a, I was a write-off at the end of the kids for like – Yeah. But you know what? It was it – was, and the other thing you realize as you watch movies, just as a sort of an aside, in in this, you know, in our situation where their mom died, every movie ever made, the mother dies. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but but yeah, so it, uh, but it allowed me to, you know, I can talk to my kids about that. And, you know, it's funny. I think the last thing I'll say about it is that it, in some ways it's helped me to love her again, you know, in a, in some way, like I, I just look back on our time together. We spent 16 years together and I can really look back on it now uh, in terms of the gifts that and the contribution that our time together made to my life now. So it's it's a very, very important process. And it's nothing to fear. There's just some discomfort about it, but it's it really is a natural part of, you know, healing and, and living our fullest lives. One of the things that I take away from what you just said and I think is is incredibly empowering for the, for the men out there that are going through something like this is that it yes it is a process but it's it's going to be different for everybody the way that they they go through that process and and literally you are processing it in your case you you rode a, a you know 100 kilometers to her gravesite and you journaled for some men they're going to do something different and i think as men we have a tendency to kind of become stagnant and not do anything in in absence of knowing what to do and and i think there is no real manual for how to do this. Yes, there are the five stages of grieving and all that sort of stuff, but just how how those manifest are going to be different for everybody. So I think one of the best things you can do is just move, do something, take action, and and it can come it can come in any way, shape, or form. You've been talking a lot about your kids, and and uh, you know your book is all about being a being a father. Both Connor and I are, are not fathers that we know of. Just curious, you know, what is the most under, or sorry, what is the most misunderstood part about being a father? Because I think, you know, there's all these, I guess, sort of stereotypes stigma, and stigma, stigmas about being a father. But, you know, what, now that you've had two children, what do you think is misunderstood about the whole process? I think what the, maybe the, the greatest lost opportunity that I see happen all the time, this is really the reason I wrote the book, is that we are conditioned to think that the best way for us to connect with our children or to have a relationship with our children is as one role in the family to another. So parent to child, really the most powerful way to build a unbreakable relationship with your kids is to connect with them as one human being to another. And, and really what that means is, is being vulnerable with them. So, so often I just had a conversation with somebody about this yesterday, but we don't, we don't tell our kids that we feel the exact same human emotions that they feel. We try to talk to them about what they're going through in some kind of abstract way, but what they would really want, what they really want to hear is that, listen, they want empathy. They want to know that you've been 
where they are. Or maybe you are there right now. Like, so for example, my daughter, I'll give you a quick example. She has a grade eight project coming up and she's terrified of this project because all she's, it's a year long project and all she's ever seen is the, you know, the completed projects from uh, some of the older grades. So she's never seen sort of the evolution of, of these projects. So she just sees these amazing final projects and thinks, good God, how am I ever going to create that? But for me to talk to her, like when I talked to her about it at first, you know, I was writing the book and instead of saying, look, you're going to figure this thing out and you're going to have support from your teacher. I said, I told her, like, I know exactly how you feel because I am in the middle right now of taking on the biggest project that I have ever taken on. And I could not be more fearful and uncomfortable. Like, I don't even know how I'm going to finish this. And I don't know if anybody's going to read it. I have a, I'm scared that I'm going to send it to the book publisher and he's going to say, this is the biggest pile of crap I've ever seen and send it back to me. And I'll have to start again. And my saying that to her, but I, but I also said, even though there's all that fear, I do believe in myself and I do believe that I will figure out how to get it done, but it's just it's day by day. Some days are great. Some days suck. And, you know, being able to talk to her in those terms, just one person to another helped her really relate to me. So really the message was to her, like, let's just figure this stuff out together. We're both working on these projects at the same time. Let's just keep talking about it, you know, and, and which we did. And, and I finished the book and she's still working on her project, but you know, it really helped her understand that we're really not that different. We're on our own journeys and we're at different points of our journeys, but fundamentally we feel the same emotions. And when kids realize that, they feel connected to you. Your kids don't want to not feel connected to you. They want to feel connected to you. We just as parents put up all these roadblocks because, you know, we think we need to, uh, you know, preach from a, a pulpit instead of lying quietly in bed with our kids and, and sharing our stories with them, you know? So that's, that's, a, I think that's for me, the most powerful lesson I've learned. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's huge. You know, it's, it's interesting. I've, Roger and I are kind of coming to that age where there's a lot of men in our community that are starting to have kids. And it's been so interesting to like see how their life shifts, you know, dramatically. And, and I think it's funny to see, um, you know, watching some of them, they've kind of gone through this process of just being like, yeah, yeah, it'll be okay. I'm super excited and it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden this little human shows up in their life and they're like, oh my gosh, I was not prepared for this. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's, and it's really quite funny to see how a lot of men, you know, start to have a sense of self-reflection after their child is born and uh, that, that maybe wasn't there before. And so I'm curious, do you, like, do you dive into some of this in the book where you talk about, you know, the, the transition of becoming a father and, and what that, you know, maybe what they can expect? Uh, not so much that specifically, but I do talk about, I do talk about some aspects of it. <laughs> like I do talk about the fact that as a dad, you need to be prepared for the fact that you may hate your child at the beginning. Okay. Right. Cause you didn't carry it around and all of a sudden you've got this thing that doesn't sleep and you feel no like emotional connection to it. And you don't, you know, it's like I spent many nights thinking, oh my God, what have I done? This kid is ruining my life. And then feeling terribly guilty um, about thinking that. But uh, no, I mean, the book is really, it's really a book about how vulnerability transforms your, not just your relationships with your kids, but about how it transforms your relationships with your spouse um, how it can make you a better, a better partner, a better lover to your spouse, and also how it makes you a better leader and a more effective and powerful, uh, positively powerful human being. That's that's really what it's about. I'm trying to really dispel this notion that uh, this really 
antiquated notion of what strength is supposed to be and what a man is supposed to be. And, and I want people to understand that, you know, we are better together. All of us are better together and we are surrounded by people. And you guys, I'm sure can know this, uh, you know, deeply from the work you're doing, but we're surrounded by people that want to help us. And there's really nothing to fear from, you know, admitting that we don't know something or asking for help. It always, it feels good to help someone. So when you ask someone for help, you're actually, be, you know, doing a service to them because you're giving the opportunity, you're giving them the opportunity to help you and to feel good. So that's really the message of what the book is about. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of stories about how there is no there's a ton of books about parenting, but there is no manual. You're going to make a ton of mistakes. And I think, you know, one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is let them see how the sausage is made when it comes to parenting. There's been tons of times where I've said to my kids, God, that it, what, how I thought that was going to turn out and how that actually turned out were like completely opposite. So, you know, sorry, but I know, you know, I know that you trust that my intentions are good. So let me, let's chalk that up to a learning experience, but let's talk about it. Like I'm a human being, man. I screwed the pooch there. So there's a lot of lessons like that too. So I think we, we live, a, a lot of people live their lives being fearful of being uh, seen as an imposter or being called out for making a mistake when really mistakes are just lessons to be learned and, and shared with our kids. So maybe they don't have to make them too. That's awesome. I, I love that. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that you're bringing <clears throat> vulnerability into the the space of you know it's, it's okay to open it up and sort of um, pull the curtain aside and say okay so you know I, I messed up there whether it's with your wife or with with your kids so that's that's fantastic and you know just as we start to wrap up here I'm just curious as to uh, whether or not you can share with us maybe like what's the one biggest lesson that you've learned in in your marriage and your relationship that really you feel is like the keys to success for you? I think the biggest lesson I have learned in my life that has applied to my relationship uh, and my marriage is that if you are unwilling to be honest with yourself, you will automatically lie to everybody else in your life. So uh, it's super, super important to be able to, again, look yourself in the mirror and be honest and without judgment about who you see staring back at you. Because once you do that, that completely frees you up to start showing the world and the people, even the people closest to you, and then the world, your authentic self. And that is when you are at your best. So your, your spouse deserves that from you. Your kids deserve that from you. And most importantly, you deserve that from yourself. Mm. Connor and I just did a, <clears throat> a little mic drop in the An air mic drop. We did a mic drop. Yeah, <laughs> that was good. Um, Jason, what's your favorite part about being a man? Oh, God. You know what? Well, I would say my favorite part of being a man right now is feeling um, is being surrounded by the women in my life. Um, I feel like it, it's like I, my favorite part of being a man is actually being a father to my daughters and being able to um, set the bar really high for what they expect in the men in their lives or the partners in their life. And I think, you know, maybe a little broader than that, my favorite part of being a man is being able to share what I'm learning with other men. It's, you know, there's Guys are dying for it. And uh, just to be able to be of service that way, um, to be show them that there's maybe a different way to be a strong, courageous, and wise man and father, uh, That's a, I feel like it's a real gift, and I feel like it's my life's work. So, And, and what would you say is the biggest challenge about being a man? Uh, I think the biggest challenge – oh, that's a great question. I think the biggest challenge about being a man is probably 
a lot of the stigma that still exists around what it means to be to be a strong man or what it means to what it takes to get ahead in the world you know and and that uh, it's cutthroat and we gotta you know there's it's really about um we can't collaborate ourselves to joint success you know it's like eat or be eaten kind of thing that's a it's a very powerful stigma it can be a challenge for sure i'm trying to break that um but i still find myself like i'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination you know i, I still sometimes find myself succumbing to those the, just a natural state of being you know i'm much better than i was but it's a life's a journey so yeah, i would say that's a challenge we've asked you a few questions in a row here we might as well run into a bit of a a rapid fire ending to this uh to this conversation we you know we always like to ask our guests uh, a series of you know sort of funner more uh more in-depth questions that kind of break out from what you know what we're what we're talking about are you, are you ready for some rapid fire questions go perfect all right so in your opinion, who is the most influential person of all time? Well, okay, this is mine is Ron Paul. Okay, I'm a libertarian, so I love that guy. Probably most of your audience hasn't heard of the guy, but uh, that's my most influential person in my life. We've heard of him. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, and and who would you say is the most resilient? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna say this is gonna sound corny, but I'm gonna say my dad. Probably, you know, he had, he had an incredibly challenging childhood like brutal and uh he has turned into just an incredibly ethical honest a man that i'm grateful to have as a father so that's he's my model for resilience amazing we were i was going to ask you who the bravest person is next but it sounds like that one might be covered by your dad as well it's kind of sounds like it's in that same category yeah yeah probably all right so the most underrated trait for modern day success in your opinion vulnerability without a doubt vulnerability and the authenticity that flows from it being yourself. Uh, what is something that everyone should experience at least once? I think that everyone should experience the great discomfort that comes from trying something that scares the living hell out of you. Nice. Very cool. What is the one book that you would bring with you on a desert island? Oh God, let me think about that for a second. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to say that the book that really changed my life is, and and that I feel the biggest attachment to is honestly the Miracle Morning by Hal Elrod. I don't know if you Very guys. Cool. Are, oh yeah, oh, I just, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I actually met him a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be on his podcast. But uh, it, uh, yeah, that book just really changed my life because it helped me understand that not every single thing I do needs to produce a quantifiable immediate result. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? That you can set yourself up for success throughout the day by taking specific, doing specific routines in the morning. That was a totally eye-opening experience for me. Awesome. No, we're big fans of Hal. We want to get Hal on the show as well. So when you meet him, if you can give, you know, give us a shout I out will. as well, that'd I be great. <laughs> um, and finally, what's the one thing that you're super excited about these days that you want everybody in Mantox land to, to know about? Um, and, and how can they learn more about you specifically if they want to say hi or, or, or learn more about yourself and the book? Yeah. So what I what I'm most excited about now is the work that I'm doing in with the in the field of appreciative inquiry. So I mean, I've really one of the ways that we typically are we're told to get better in our lives is to fix all the things that are broken about us, um, and then that'll help us make us successful. But appreciative inquiry posits that really, you know, there's already so many things that work about us or about a, a system that if we focus on creating more of what already works, we will create uh, sustainable and lasting change. And it's such an uplifting, amazing methodology for helping people understand that, you know, you're not broken. 
you're, there's a ton of stuff that works about, about you. And if you start doing more of the stuff that works, um, you're just going to outgrow some of the stuff that doesn't work. So I do a lot of doing mastermind groups around that. And I'm putting together some uh, leadership training because I've, I've never met a leader that embodied these principles. And I really believe that it could uh, really create a new paradigm as far as leadership in the corporate world. Um, and my uh, website is thebookofopen.com. And I, really there, I give people a platform to share their stories. Uh, there's people that have shared some incredible, incredible stories uh, on there. And I really want to help people become cultivate vulnerability and realize that it's so liberating to just finally tell your own version of your own truth. And so there's some very powerful stories on there. It's really a passion project for me. And uh, you can find some information about my book, The Deadly Book of Open there as well. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, I will always, always respond and I will do anything I can to help anybody. And my email is jason at thebookofopen.com. Awesome. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Guys out there and, and ladies, um, if you want to listen to more episodes of the Man Talks podcast, you can go to mantalks.com forward slash podcast, or please subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, download the podcast so that it's automatically updated uh, to your phone. You're never going to miss an episode. Um, plus, please leave us a ratings on iTunes or Stitcher to help man it forward and get the Man Talks podcast into as many ears as possible. Thank you so much for listening to the Man Talks podcast. Catch us next Next week for another interview as we build better men through conversation, connection, and community together. 